Well, amen, amen. If you have your uh, Bible with you, if you would, Second Thessalonians is where we where we end, or kind of end, where we land today, I should say. We're ending chapter 2, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we will be hanging out today. So we kind of wrap up uh, this particular chapter, kind of give you a brief um, synopsis of kind of where we have been over the past uh, several weeks. So the church in Thessalonica, if you're new with this uh, today, church in Thessalonica was a, was a young church. Paul had planted this church. He loved this church. And now he's writing them a letter because he's, he's gotten word that some, several things are happening. First and foremost is that they're, having, they're dealing with really, really intense persecution. Lots of persecution happening to this particular church. Um, and then also he has some doctrinal things that he's trying to clean up with them. And so over the past several, um, over the past several uh, weeks as we've been journeying through this particular book... Uh, we've noticed that Paul has been, has been talking to them about how to endure the persecution that they're having to, uh, to, to battle, how they're, they're, they're teaching. They've, they've obviously been sent some, uh, a letter. Uh, and last week we talked about where Paul says that um, be careful of, the, of these letters that were seemingly sent to us. And so Paul is, is, is trying to uh, just kind of challenge them, encourage them a little bit as way, but also saying, listen, don't be, you know, if it's not really from us, don't pay any attention to it. There's Pay attention to what it is that we have taught you and what I have and how we have led you. And so Paul at this point is uh, really just trying to encourage this, this uh, church in Thessalonica. And so he kind of wraps up the end of this particular chapter again, encouraging uh, the church here. Many of y'all um, are history people and you like history. Um, then you're probably familiar with, especially those of you, those of you with, who like military history, you're definitely familiar with uh, maybe this date, maybe not so much the date, but what, what the, uh, the significance of the date really was. So um, the date was, September, was December 16th, December 16th, 1944. December 16th, 1944. This was the day in which what we know now as the Battle of the Bulge began. The Battle of the Bulge began in December 16th, 1944, and it lasted until January 25th, 1945. It was six weeks if you've ever watched the, um, the little mini-series, Band of Brothers, they spend a significant amount of time on this particular one battle. And the, it was called the Battle of the Bulge for one reason. All these allied forces had come together against to defeat Hitler. And so they had come and they had this western front, as it was known, and they were beginning to try to push the, the Nazi army back toward Germany. Everybody's trying to go that direction. And so it extended a long way, this western front, and um, tons and tons of casualties had already occurred at this point. And then, then all of a sudden, what Hitler decides to do is he realizes in his kind of a last-ditch last effort to try to win this war that he's going to focus a lot of his army, a lot of his, the war effort, on the central line around Belgium. So he sends 30 different divisions over the course of this six weeks to this particular area to try to push these troops back. And so he began to, to push these troops back so much that, that there was this bulge in the line of the Western Front. Therefore, it gets the name Battle of the Bulge. His plan was that if he could split the American forces to the south and the British forces to the north, that he would be able to get in there and he'd be able to just to, to, to be able to take over the world, if you will, which was his ultimate goal. Winston Churchill actually called this battle the greatest American battle of the war. It was the greatest single American battle of the war. Within this war, we lost almost 20,000 men in this particular battle. A lot of people battled 
against the regime that Hitler was trying to, to introduce into all of Europe at this particular time. Not only was it a massive battlefront that they were, um, there, that the, the, the American troops in this case were trying to push back these 30 different um, uh, divisions, Nazi divisions, but it was also a frozen tundra. It was freezing cold. And so you have these men, and if you've, if you've seen Band of Brothers or any movie kind of like that, kind of depicting this, these men in foxholes freezing and still battling. But against really kind of all odds, 30,000, or sorry, 30 different divisions coming in, the American troops at the time dug their heels in, and they were not going to be defeated. And they, were, they ended up being able to defeat the Nazis at what is now known as the Battle of the Bulge. Again, one of the greatest American battles during that war, according to Winston Churchill. Now, what was it that, that these, these Americans were able to do? I think, one, we're kind of stubborn. Most of us, like, we don't really like to lose. I mean, we're, after all, we're back-to-back World War champions, right? Like, we, we're, we don't like to lose, in that regard. But what they did is these men, as they began to fight and begin to battle, and as, as, the, as the, the, the army or the, the Nazi Germany began to um, approach them, they dug their heels in and they said, we're not going anywhere. We're not going to be defeated. And what you want to do is not going to happen. They stood firm. Well, Paul in 2 Thessalonians, in the end of this particular chapter, he encourages the church to do that very same thing, is to stand firm. Ever increasing in our world today, it is more and more difficult to stand firm for what it is that we believe, what the Bible teaches. And so Paul here, again, is encouraging the church in Thessalonica, but he's also encouraging us, too, as we read it some 2,000 years later, to still stand firm and to be encouraged by what God has done and what he will continue to do. So one of the things we want to understand this morning, um, overall, as we look at this this particular uh, few verses that we're going to be studying we need to understand that his grace towards us, that his grace towards us requires a firm stance from us. So his grace towards us requires a firm stance from us. So if you have your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to begin at 13 through 17. If you would, stand with me as we read. <clears throat> Paul here writes, He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now many, uh, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we get to sit here this morning and we get to read it, that we get to study it, and that we get to, uh, Lord, let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and transform and pummel our hearts in such a way, God, that we'd be transformed by your word. And so, God, that's what we pray this morning. Help us to understand Help us to be encouraged by the truths throughout your word this morning. 
and may we be forever changed by it. And we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things we're going to sound like a little bit like a broken record this morning. Um, it is a broken record that Paul has all throughout his writing. And it's this idea, and we talked about it briefly last week, about this gift of grace. If you remember, we said last week that, that, uh, that grace is this gift that has been given to us. And again, it's, the, it's this gift that we receive that's been given to us that when we give it away, we still get to keep it. Like salvation is this gift that has been given when we give it away. In other words, we're faithful to the gospel, to the, to the great commission and going and sharing the gospel that when we do give it away, we still get to keep what it is that we have. And so Paul here again is encouraging them through faith in Jesus Christ, this gospel. He's encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this morning, we're going to talk about God's grace and we're going to hopefully try to, even though we'll never really be able to understand it, we're going to try to hopefully grasp a little bit of the magnitude that the Lord has shown us through his grace. We need to understand first and foremost, we just set some boundaries and some guidelines here for, for you and I, is that again, coming back to some previous weeks within this, um, within this series, is that grace is nothing, and the gospel and this gift, this free gift is nothing that we earned. It was something that was gifted to us, as we saw last week. It was nothing that we had done to earn the love of Christ or his favor at all. If we were honest with ourselves and we read scripture to find out what it is that we truly have earned and what it is that we do deserve, we deserve his wrath and not his grace and love. For we are sinners who have sinned against the holy God. We deserve his wrath. We do not deserve grace. Yet he still has given us his grace. So the first thing we need to understand this morning is that if you're a believer here this morning, you need to understand that we have been given a gift in Christ. We've been given a gift in Christ. Take a look at what he says, what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, but we, but we ought always give thanks to God for you. This should be similar to what we remember in, in the first week that we went, going back several weeks now to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says the same thing, but we ought always give thanks to God for you. Again, bookending these two little sections of we give thanks for you for who you are. It's an encouraging statement. So he says, we ought always give thanks to you, brothers, uh, beloved by the Lord, reminding them they are loved by the Lord because, why do we give thanks? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Paul here is saying that, that in, again, this is a, an early church that was planted by Paul on his missionary journey when they're, during, the, during the, uh, uh, the persecution of the early church. When the church began to get persecuted, people got fearful of their lives and they began to flee all the, to, the, to all over the world, to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they took the gospel with them. And everywhere that they went, they shared the gospel. And they told people about Jesus and what he has done for them and what he can do for you. And so Paul has gone out during this moment when he's going out and the persecution has happened and he begins to plant these churches. And he says here, then, you know, that you should that we give thanks to you. Why? Because God chose you, this congregation, to be the first fruit, some of the first people that ever came to know Christ. This is you. You have become the first fruits. Paul's trying to encourage them and tell them that, that salvation is not a subjective experience 
of doing things for God. This is something that we always kind of, all of us kind of land in a lot of times. We always feel like we've got to do things for God. I've got to go to church for God. I've got to serve the church for God. Like I got to do all of these things so that he in all reality finds favor with me. But what happens in the end is there's no favor. Like we're not earning any favor with God. But Paul is telling them that it's, it's not a subjective experience based on what we do for God, but it's an objective standing based on what God has done for us. So what has he done for us? I mean, he has sent Jesus to die for us. Again, it's a gift that we receive, and it's not a right that we earned. It's a gift that we receive. You guys like movies. You know I like movies. Every, I think every sermon has to have a movie reference, at least one or two in there. Uh, one, of my, one of my, I guess one of my favorite movies I liked growing up, and I still, if it comes on TBS or whatever, one of those stations, I'll watch it when it's on there, but it was uh, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You guys remember that story, right? It was a great story. And you'll remember there's two characters. There's Morgan Freeman's character in there, and then there's Kevin Costner's char- character in the, in the movie. And Kevin Costner saves the life of Morgan Freeman. What does Morgan Freeman do? Morgan Freeman, at the end of that particular movie, or at the end of that particular scene, he sits there like, I am bonded to you. I'm going to be next to your side until I can return the favor. And if you remember at the end of the movie, he returns the favor, just like movies do. They all wrap it up in a, in a nice bow, and he stayed next to him. And he saved his life. And one of the things that we want to do, I think it's just almost human nature, is that when somebody does something nice for, this, for us, we always want to repay them. Somebody gives you a gift. It's really, is it, do you find it difficult to receive gifts? I kind of do. I like gifts. Now, I like getting, I like things. I like gifts and things. Like, but I have a hard time sometimes feeling like I'm receiving a gift and not giving something in return. I always want to, oh, well, thanks. What do I have here? What can I give you if I'm caught off guard, you know, and then you're trying to find something? Have some keys, you know, whatever it is. Have a keys to my car, whatever it may be. But we try to, we try to, when somebody gives us a gift, we want to do something in return. Why? It's because out of, out of gratitude for what it is that they've done for us. And this gift that we've been given from Christ, or that, that Christ has given us, that this gift of salvation is nothing that we earn, that we did in our own behavior. He's not giving us like, oh, here, because you did so many good things, here's the salvation. That's not what he's doing. He gives us salvation, and therefore you and I, the things that he asks of us to do and the way that he encourages us and challenges us to live and to talk, we do. Why? Not because of anything that we've done, but because out of, out of gratitude of our heart, we want to love him better and know him more. And so out of gratitude, what do we do? We do the things that Christ, that Christ requires of us because of what he has done for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul reminds Timothy that it was Jesus. What does he say? He was Jesus who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ just before the ages began. So we have to sit here and understand that, that salvation comes from God, not from anything that we have done. We're not saving ourselves. We're not trying to climb this ladder to, to, to Christ through works. It's not how this works at all. It was the works of Christ that offered salvation to you and I. So it begs the question again, I mean, we, we talk about how is it that we are saved? What, is the, what does Paul say here? He says that we are saved through, in verse 13, through sanctification by the Spirit. 
How is it that we are sanctified? We talked about this a few weeks back. How is it that we are sanctified? It's, it's Christ's work in and through us. We talked about this fancy term that you could use um, with all your friends at lunch um, and, and impress them with, with fun vocabulary called imputed righteousness, right? It was the righteousness of Christ that is given to us, that is laid upon us. It's, take, it's like taking off a blanket off of one person and putting it onto the other one. You're imputing something over to them. We have been imputed with righteousness, and it's the righteousness of Christ. And so, when we think about how is it that we're saved, we're sanctified through the Spirit. We're set apart to be holy. Sanctified uh, through the Spirit was this, this work of God and His grace. Because we didn't make ourselves be holy. It was Him that did it. And He desires us to be holy, but how is it that we're holy? We can't be holy on our own. It was God, in fact, who did it. So we see that we're saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and by, this, um, and by the belief in the truth at the end of verse 13 there. So what does it mean? So we're, sanctified through this, we're, we're saved through sanctification uh, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Basically saying in, your, in, in faith, in your faith in what is true. This is in a direct opposition of what we read last week in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, where uh, Paul writes that in, in, in order that all might be condemned who did not believe the truth. All who did not believe the truth were going to be condemned. So how is it that we are not condemned? It is through sanctification of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Well, what is that truth? That truth is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your, your sin and for my sin. So that we will have eternal life for those who just simply trust and have faith in Jesus Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5 says this. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been, been saved. Look at all that. When, even when we were dead in our trespasses, it was God who made us alive. It wasn't us. It was God who made us alive. And in, in, uh, further on down a little bit in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. I think it's interesting that he says so that no one would boast because this is what we would do. If we made this ladder and we climbed this ladder to where we could be with God, I mean, on our own effort, every single one of, this, uh, of, uh, every single one of us in this room would, would boast about it. We'd like, I got this ladder. Look at, all this, look at all these things I did to get to God. I want you to come check it out. Come check this out. We would all do it. And that's how I know we do it, because we do it now. Every time something cool happens, how are you going to come check this out? Got this new truck. It's awesome. You're going to love it. You're going to be jealous, too. You're going to love it. Because that's what we do. But, but Paul writes here to the church in Ephesus this time. He says, this, you, it's a gift of God. The salvation you have is a gift of God, not as a result of, uh, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. We're not saved by anything that we have done but rather through the, the sanctification of the Spirit and faith. Paul continues in verse 14. He says, To this he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says to this, he's talking about sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. He has called us through the gospel. What is he talking about there? It's through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the gospel message. 
And he says it is through this, through our gospel, that you've been transformed, that you've been changed, that you've been sanctified, so that you may obtain, this is where, the, this is where you get the gift. This is where you get the gift. So that you, have made, you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gift. And that's the gift we get to give away. That's the message that we have when we leave this place here in just a few minutes and we walk out those doors and we sit at a restaurant or we're sitting at home and we're, we're hanging out with our kids or whatever it is and we have opportunities to share the gospel. That is the gift we are trying to give away. I've got something that you need and I want you to have it. You remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, just as a reminder, with all the wicked deception uh, for those who are perishing, he's, he's kind of, there's, there's this contrast from, the, from, the, from last week's uh, passage that we talked about, about these people who are going to be perishing. What, did they, what was it they were perishing for? It was because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refused to love the truth, therefore they would not be saved. It's in both cases, whether you receive the truth and are saved or you're, you don't receive the truth and are not saved. In both cases, in both cases, Paul here is saying that there's a deliberate choice. There's a deliberate choice. Either we accept or we reject the gospel. So it's a deliberate choice that we have, you and I, to reject or accept the gospel. God's act in salvation towards you and I had nothing to do with anything good that we have done, but solely and completely because of the love that he has for you and I. We're saved only because he loved us. He saves the unlovable. It is a tremendous gift that he has given us. When was the last time you sat there and you thought about what it was that, that God had, had saved you from? I got saved when I was 16 years old. Not a lot of life had happened before I was 16 years old, but I sit there and I think about it. I go, you know, what truly was I saved from at 16 years old? I wasn't completely aware of, of the sin that I was living. I knew that I was a sinner, but I didn't really know what it was. I knew there was some, I was doing some bad stuff. But I didn't exactly know what, what sin it was that I was being saved from. Now, coming up on, you know, 30 years of being a believer, like, I sit there and I think, man, I look back and I go, man, God has saved me from all of this stuff. But it wasn't even really just individual things that he saved me from. The thing I'm most grateful that God saved me from is he saved me from me. He saved me from me. And when God gives us the gift of salvation, he saves us from ourselves, these sinners who are destined to be their own God, who have a desire to do life their own way and want nothing to do with any, anybody else sitting in that throne. We just want it all of ourselves. But what has he saved me from? When was the last time you sat and you thought about that? And what has God done? It didn't take very long for me to just motor back to yesterday and find out how impatient I was yesterday. I think God saved me from that. 
or motor back to I was in college and I was just being a fool, living a foolish life, and God saved me from that. And when was the last time you sat down and you just sat there and, and, and praised the Lord for what he has saved you from? We'll talk about what he saved us to here in just a second, but what has he saved us from? Maybe during our response time here just shortly, you'll be able to have this, this time where you can just spend just those brief moments just thanking God for what he has done and what he has saved you from. Well, because of this grace that we've been shown, Paul then embarks on this thing that we have to be, this, this, this section of scripture that we have to be really, really careful not to be led astray by, by false doctrine. We can't, uh, we can't back down and, and accept any cultural ideologies that are out there that are floating around. We have to, as believers, we have to stand firm in what it is that the Word of God teaches us. And there's only one way for the church to stand and to not fall. And that brings us to our second thing. Believer, we have to, you and I, we have to cling to the truth of Christ. Look what Paul has to say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. He tells us to stand firm. This is directly in opposition of what he talk, we talked about last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, where, if you remember right, it was, it was being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. But he's saying, don't be quickly shaken in your mind or, or, or be alarmed, but to stand firm. Hold fast to. He's reminding us that the only effective means by which to confront error, and we see it all around us in our culture today, it's all around us. The only way to which we can confront this error is to stand firm and hold to the truth. And what is that truth? He says there in verse 15, to the traditions that you were taught by us. Traditions is an is a interesting word because it's, it's a word that uh, we like to use only when it benefits us, I think, right? Like most of us in here, I, mean, I grew up, I didn't really, I'm not a traditional person, I would necessarily say, I, but the older I get, I become far more traditional, right? There are things that I like, traditions that I like to see happen. I like Christmas a certain way, and I like Thanksgiving meal a certain way. I like other traditions in life, but they're all kind of subjective. They're important to me. Some traditions I don't particularly care about. But this word here, traditions, that Paul is using, is using, what, uh, is, is using here is, is basically these things that have been handed down. In other words, these traditions that I gave you, Paul is saying, I need you to live by them. As believers, we are to live by these traditions that have been, in fact, handed down. Not some new teaching, but those teachings that are, in fact, proven. One of my favorite, um, uh, I guess, comedians out right now is, is, a, is a comedian by the name of Nate Bargatze. I don't know if you know, maybe he comes across your Facebook stream, or maybe you've seen him, or maybe you've watched his special during COVID, because it was the biggest special there for a season during COVID, and uh, just a Nashville boy. Nate Bargatze has a, has a little bit I thought was kind of funny. He talked about being home during COVID, and then all of a sudden, he was a homeschool dad. 
Many of us were there, right? We're trying to figure out how it is that we homeschool our kids when now all of a sudden they're at home and trying to manage all that stuff. And, and if you're, you know, uh, if you're me, you know, you see this, the, the homework of a third grader and you blame it on it being so far away you can't remember because third grade was a long time ago, but you're really going, I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> Just ask your mother, <laughs> right? That was kind of, ask the smart one of the family. That's the way we do it at our house. And so neighbor Gatsi talks about these things. He talks about being home with his kids and having to teach his kids uh, math. And he goes, all of a sudden there was this new math that was out. There's this new math I didn't understand. I'm sitting there trying to figure out why they're taking uh, groups over here and then they're separating numbers over here and what happened, what was wrong with the old math? The old math worked great. It's worked for hundreds of years. Like what's the deal with, with this old math and new math? I don't get it. And so he began to have just this little funny bit about, about how it is that um, you, you teach different things. And when we talk about what Paul is talking about here, we're not talking about him teaching new things. Or I should say, he's not teaching about old things, but a new way. What Paul here is trying to combat is this. He's combating these things, these people that are just coming up with all these new teachings that aren't grounded in biblical tradition, which is where we find ourselves, you and I, 2,000 years later sitting. He's not referencing or referring to communicating old truths in new ways, which is where you kind of maintain the integrity of the truth being taught. But instead, listening to these new truths that are out there, like two plus two equals five. Paul says to hold fast to the original foundational teachings. Unless the church is grounded in truth, it will continue to be vulnerable to these false teachings. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that we must grow in our faith so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, and deceitful schemes. So we have to stand firm and hold on to these truths of Scripture, foundational biblical truths. Foundational truths that are found only in the Word of God that we get to hold in our hands every single week, that we have on our phone, that we can go through those biblical truths. We must never waver from those truths regardless of the pressure. We must cling to the truth we have in Christ and His Word. And while we must certainly stand firm, hold fast, and cling to the truth of God's Word, we must also know that we cannot do this under our own power. Look what he, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, leads us to our third point. He says, believer, we have to depend on the work of Christ. On the work of Christ. So he concludes this way. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us, remember this is his action, not us, who loved us, and he gave us eternal comfort. Eternal comfort in what? Eternal comfort in Jesus. And good hope through grace. He says to comfort your hearts, comfort your hearts, to encourage your hearts, to be encouraged, and establish them. This is the same, this is uh, opposite of, of that quickly shaken alarm thing we talked about last week. He's like, don't be shaky, but be but stand firm 
Stand firm. You ever been on a boat? Many of y'all like cruises. I remember the first time I went on a cruise. And those are massive boats, but it took me a little while to get my sea legs. And if you've ever been out on a smaller boat, maybe out in the ocean or whatever, I don't ever want to do that. I'm, the ocean's kind of scary. I want to be on a big boat with lots of life jackets um, and lots of little boats that can go off from the big boat in case the big boat does something that shouldn't, big boats shouldn't do. So, I hope that makes sense to you. I hope you're with me on that, right? So, but if you've ever been on a small boat, I've been on boats on lakes and things like that, it takes a little bit as you're walking to kind of get your sea legs. If you watch like Deadliest Catch and you see those boats going up and down and all those things and those guys, and the, it's always like that greenhorn guy that gets on there and he gets real sick. Why? Because he doesn't have the sea legs. He's not, he doesn't have sea legs. He doesn't have the, he's not really used to the water and the waves. But one of the things you talk to any of those guys, it says, if you want to try to get over your seasickness, one of the things that you do is you look to a particular point. You stay focused. You fix your eyes on the horizon. And when you do that, when you fix your eyes to the horizon, your body can kind of get used to it and kind of maintain it. The same thing applies to our faith. When, when, when our faith, when the crazy is around us and it seems uncertain, as believers, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Our certainty comes from the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's where our certainty comes from. So in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the crazy that's around us, amidst all of the, the, um, the new teachings that are out there, we fix our eyes on Jesus. God is ask, or, um, Paul is asking God to make our belief, our faith, certain and unshakable. He's asking God to empower us, empower them with the ability, the ability in what? The ability in every good work and deed. What does he mean by this? We would simply say this today, that every good work indeed is to walk the walk and to talk the talk. So what is it that Paul is asking and encouraging him to do is to live a life where you say what you believe and you live what you believe. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus is the founder or the author and the protector, excuse me, the perfecter of our faith, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So Christian, it's, it's not enough to simply say that, that we're going to stand firm, that we're going to do it. The time has passed for followers of Christ to follow him in word only. The time has passed for, for us, you and I, whether you're connected at Eastwood or you're not, to just simply attend church and nothing more. The time has come for us to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves, do I simply talk the talk or do I walk the walk? And that's what Paul has encouraged the church is to, in Thessalonica, is to walk the walk and to talk the talk. Maybe you're here today and you're, you are a believer and, and you can't relate to that, that your life does not match what Scripture says 
how we're to live. Well, so maybe today is the day in which you spend some time here just momentarily, just in, in, in quiet repentance, talking with the Lord and saying, Lord, help me to, for, first of all, forgive me of not walking the walk and talking the talk. But maybe you sit there and say, Lord, help me do this. Like, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. Because he knows. He knows you can't. And he says, let me help you to live a life that is worthy and pleasing to him. So maybe here in just a second, that's what this time of invitation is for you, is to, to repent and to ask God to help you in that. Maybe this time of response for, for some of you in here who are believers is to simply thank God for what he has saved you from. But he saved us from ourselves, and he saved us two good works, to walk the walk and to talk the talk. And so maybe this morning we just thank him for what he has done. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Let me just tell you out of the gate, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus your life is destined post-death to, a, or to a, a real place called hell. That was not designed for you. There was no desire in God, God's heart to sit there and say, that's where you belong. But that's where your life is headed if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. A real place. Where those people who do not come to faith in Christ, who have never repented of their sins, will spend eternity in hell paying for their sins. Atonement for your sins can happen in two ways. Either one, you pay for them yourselves in eternity in a place called hell. Or number two, you let Jesus pay for them. Jesus has already atoned. He's already sacrificed himself on the cross for your sins. And all you have to do, as he was telling him, is, is, is believe. He told the church in Thessalonica to have faith in him, have faith in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. And so my prayer is here just momentarily as we stand and as we sing, if you have questions about coming to faith in Christ, I'll be here at the front. I'll have Pastor Jeremy and Dave will be down here as well. We'll have we, plenty of people who would love to, to work with you and to talk with you through that and what that means to be a Christian. Spend as much time as you would like And if you repent of your sins today, you can trust that the gift that you have just been given, this gift of salvation, with that gift you gain entry into heaven to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. But know today the gospel has been laid out for you. You can either reject it or you can either accept it. That is on you. And so may this morning be the day of your salvation.